Two in a Boat by Howard Saxby. Read for LibriVox.org by Greg Giordano. Newport Ritchie, Florida. Two in a Boat. Chapter One. John Clinton Wentworth was by no means an ordinary man. Besides being gifted with an inordinate amount of scientific and classical learning, he was the fortunate possessor of a great deal of that invaluable quantity so seldom found in the scholar, sound common sense. It was on this account that he had learned a trade and not a profession. To a man of his poetic temperament, who would have loved above all things to have taken up a literary career, it required no small amount of self-denial to put his attainments and inclinations behind him and settle down to the long, unromantic, steady grind of an ordinary business life. But his actions were invariably influenced by his great bump of common sense. He knew a literary life would probably be very unremunerative, while, on the other hand, the trade in which he had been offered an apprenticeship held forth many promises of pecuniary success. Therefore, he followed it. Time proved he had taken the right course. At the age of forty, he was at the head of a large publishing firm, and possessed a sufficient quantity of worldly dross to make him independent for life. It was at this time that a desire came over him to cross the Atlantic and spend several months in Europe. He explained this to his wife, saying he thought they both needed a change. He would go to Europe. She would stay at home and look after the children. You, he argued, are doubtless tired of always going to places where I want to go, of always having dinners that please me. You know I hate chicken, also beans. While it is an indisputable fact that you and the children are passionately fond of both, therefore I will put my own personal desires and predilections aside. I will put myself to the great annoyance and trouble of taking a trip to Europe that you and the children may revel in chicken and beans. Mrs. Wentworth had heard her husband argue like this before, and she knew what it meant. Long years ago, she had learned that he was and always would be, master in his own house. So she said, Very well, my dear, and thus the matter was decided. A month later, John Wentworth went to England, the home of his forefathers. A week he spent in London, reveling in the wonders of the Crystal Palace, and feasting his curiosity on the gruesome relics of the tower. His evenings he spent at the music halls and theatres. During the next three weeks, he took little journeys over the kingdom, enjoying all of it immensely. A month he spent on the continent, and, although Rome, France, and Switzerland were pleasing to his artistic taste, his inclinations once more drew him back to London. Above all other cities, he loved London, and he determined to return and stay there, for the last month of his foreign trip. It appalled him to think he must soon return to the tiresome grind of business. He was rich enough to keep his family in more than comfortable circumstances for life, but twenty years of steady toiling for gold had deadened his artistic longings and impregnated his very blood 
with a desire for more. More, more. He did not want to go back to work, but he knew he would. One night, soon after his return from the continent to London, the incident occurred around which our story hinges. He had dropped into Madame Tussaud's waxwork show on Baker Street in search of amusement, and, just as he was about to leave, intending to go to one of the music halls, a young and rather pretty woman standing near dropped her handkerchief. He picked it up quickly, and with a courteous and impressive bow, handed it to her. Oh, thank you, she said, with a smile that displayed to advantage two charming dimples on her rosy cheeks. Not at all, he replied, enchanted with her freshness and beauty. Fine likeness of Napoleon, isn't it? Alluding to the wax figure near which they were standing. She seemed rather pleased at this effort to open a conversation. Yes, all the figures here are wonderfully like the originals. Do you know, when you were standing so still over there in the corner, I thought it was a statue of Lord Byron. Ah, you flatter, he exclaimed, delighted that she had noticed him before. They walked in and out among the figures, conversing as if they had been friends for years. He found she was a wealthy Irish widow, whose husband had been dead for some two years. Her name was Mrs. Lucille O'Hara. I don't like the last name, she naively admitted. It's too impossibly Irish. Then may I call you by the first? He was quick to inquire. She smiled demurely. I have known you for so short a time, but it seems as if it had been always. He told her he was a bachelor. His name was John Clinton Wentworth. He explained that he was a man of letters, a poet, but that he always wrote under a nom de plume. That night he took her to supper at the Café Royal, and after seeing her to the house at which she was stopping, returned to his hotel. Two evenings later, they met in the ladies' waiting room of the Savoy by appointment, and thus their acquaintanceship was renewed. They both enjoyed each other's company, and during the remainder of Wentworth's stay in London, were together the greater part of the time. Mrs. O'Hara knew every inch of the great metropolis, and with so fair a guide, time literally flew. The young widow imagined that Wentworth was passionately in love with her, and he thought she was in love with him. Sometimes it is well to think. Chapter 2 At last came the day of parting. Wentworth assured the pretty widow that, although it was obligatory for him to return to America, and continue his literary duties, he would return some day in the near future, and claim her for his own. She told him she would wait for him, that she could never love anyone else. They both promised to correspond, gave each other their addresses, and then parted. Wentworth returned to his home and to his office duties. After all, he did not care for the woman. She had only been to him a pleasant companion on his London jaunts. Now that he was once more back in his office, and business affairs had taken a firm hold of his mind, he only thought of her when he received one of her long and loving letters. He wrote to her very seldom, 
and her letters were full of reproaches for his negligence and fears that he had forgotten her. It was the week after the coronation of King Edward the Seventh that the affair came to an abrupt ending. The pretty widow, with her dear John's interest always at heart, sent him a copy of the illustrated London graphic, containing many pictures and a full account of the coronation. Wentworth thought this harmless-looking enough, and so, after glancing at it casually, he took it home to read at some leisure moment. He little knew what a heavy thunderbolt he was flinging at himself. When he reached his suburban residence the following evening, he found his spouse awaiting him with extreme anger and indignation written on every line of her countenance. "'Come into the library,' she cried passionately. "'I have discovered how you carried on in London. So you would flaunt your mistress's letters in my very face, would you? This is a nice way to do.' So she pins her loving epistles inside of newspapers, does she? Oh, you brute! Wentworth did not know what to make of it. He had never seen his wife so wrought up over anything in his life. She was of a calm, easy-going, reserved nature, that, as a rule, could be easily bent to his will. But now he beheld a veritable Xantippe. So excited was she over the discovery of his faithlessness. When she reached the study, she jerked down the lid of her writing desk, and pulling out a letter, handed it to him. Suppose you thought I would never think of looking in the graphic, she observed sarcastically. I found this pinned to one of the pages. My own Jack, no wonder you were so fond of London. He took the sheet of paper mutely, gazing at it in a dazed manner for fully half a minute. Then he gave a cry and stared at her angrily. So, he exclaimed, you have dared to reproach me for being faithless to you? You have dared to tell me, your husband, that I have a mistress? And now you, you hand me a letter from another man in which he addresses you as Darling Bertha, my own true love? Pish, I shall not deign to read it. He tore the paper into shreds and stormed from the room. His wife looked down at her desk. Horror of horrors! There was the letter she had intended to give him in one of the pigeon holes. She had given him a letter from the man who had been making love to her while her husband was in Europe. Wentworth walked back to the garden and sat down on a wooden bench. His little flirtation in London had not seemed of much moment to him. But when he had found his wife had been doing the same thing in his absence, his whole mental equilibrium was disturbed. He leaned over and rested his head on his hands. For some time he sat thus, and at last, just as he had decided it would be best to get a divorce, he heard footsteps behind him. John, timidly said the voice of his wife. Well, he replied savagely, you see, dear, we are both in the same boat, only I don't think I was as bad as you were. Don't you think we had better forgive each other? I really didn't love this man, you know. He only amused me. Did you love the woman, John? No. This time more gently. I have forgiven you, John. Won't you forgive me? He raised his head and looked at her. For the children's sake, she pleaded, if not for mine. 
for the children's sake, he said, I will forgive you. And then Mrs. Wentworth leaned over and gave her husband the first affectionate kiss he had known in years. Together they wrote a letter to the young Irish widow. It explained that he, John Wentworth, had fallen in love with a certain young lady from Baltimore, Miss Bertha Croft by name, and had married her. He hoped that she, the young widow, had by this time got over all feelings of affection for him, and that she would very soon follow his example and take upon her shoulders the matrimonial yoke. A few weeks later, Wentworth received the reply from Mrs. O'Hara. She was sorry to say she had misrepresented herself to him all the time they had known each other in London. Her husband was not dead, and her real name was not O'Hara. It was the name of the friend with whom she was stopping, and through this confidant she had received his letters. Her real name was Densmore. Her husband had been absent in America, attending to some property left him by a distant relation, and, owing to a lawsuit brought against him by a pretended heir, had been obliged to remain there for six months. She was glad he... Wentworth was happily married, for she had been far from easy in her conscience over the way she had deceived him. The name Densmore seemed familiar to Wentworth, and when he returned home that night, he said to his wife, What was the name of that fellow you met when I was away? Why, she replied, I thought we had agreed not to mention that. His name was Densmore. And then John Wentworth took a deep, astonished breath, and sat down heavily on the nearest chair. End of story. This recording is in the public domain.